0: So, I go to my doctor for a checkup. How does he define I'm healthy? Blood pressure, finger on the prostate, you know, and uh, a couple of other things. They have no idea how to define health. And so, we don't really know. Um, we, we just look at the person and say, by all markers, they're healthy. Therefore, this microbiota must be healthy.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Biomes. If you are joining again, thanks very much for listening in again. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome to the Biomes Podcast, where we talk all things human microbiomes. This week, I have a fascinating and I think fair to say outspoken guest uh, in Professor Gregor Reed. Uh, Dr. Reed is a distinguished professor of microbiology and immunology and surgery at Western University, Ontario in Canada, and the Endowed Chair in Human Microbiome and Probiotics at the Lawson Health Research Institute. He is one of the foremost experts in probiotics in the world. In fact, he chaired the panel that first defined probiotics about 18 or 19 years ago now. Dr. Reed's research initially started out examining potential ways to fight urinary tract infections in women, and he discovered that lactobacilli could be used as probiotics to help fight urinary tract infections. He's since gone on to undertake research in a wide area of clinical fields related to the human microbiome and the potential role for probiotics in fighting a wide range of clinical disorders. I had a wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Reed, which touched on everything from UTIs to preterm birth to the controversies of probiotics and even how probiotics may help bees. But I started off by talking to him about his original work in urinary tract infections and the potential for probiotics to fight UTIs. He told me that other researchers at the time were all focusing on E. coli, which is a cause of UTIs. So instead, him and his collaborators focused on lactobacilli, which they found could help fight urinary tract infections. He talked about them developing probiotics to help fight UTIs and the difficulties in developing probiotics in a business world when you're trying to create something that may be a food product or could be a drug, depending on how it's delivered.
0: His uh, work in 1973 was looking at women who got a, a urinary tract infection and women who didn't. And he was looking at the periurethal flora. And he found that the woman that didn't had lactobacilli. So it's interesting. In the field, everybody went with the E. coli story. And they wanted to get a vaccine and stuff like this. And really, it led nowhere. And he said, no, no, no. I want to find out why lactobacilli were protective. And we started looking at, well, which lactobacilli would be able to inhibit E. coli, which is uh, sorry uh, 82, 83, and what kind of properties would they have? So it took us a long time. And um, they, to me, they, I think we had the, the right approach. What people do is they say, let's get a lactobacilli that's commonly found in the vagina, and then let's put it back in. We said no, no, no. Why, why don't we look at a lactobacilli that does what you want it to do? It doesn't matter if it's indigenous to that site because it's not going to colonize in anyway. it. And so it turned out there was a rhamnosus strain, and a, eventually it was a fermentum. And it was interesting because the the classification moved from acidophilus fermentum to reuteri. and now of course it's changing again. But um, we eventually found two strains that inhibited either the gram negatives or the gram positives. And we put them together and they said, well, how would you administer this? And so the obvious one is intravaginally. And we did some studies, small studies intravaginally. But the problem you then face is um, to develop that into a product, because if you don't have a product, then you, you know, you're know you not applying your stuff to a relevant situation. I'm I'm a big proponent of you really going to talk about health of women, you have to try and do something for women. So I'm not going to spend my my life uh, studying enzymes and, and, and animals, right? And so the problem was you you uh, then had to develop it as a drug because it's uh, intravaginal, and of course the expense and the time is unbelievable. And We had some real sharks that came after us. I mean, this guy, he came in and he says, well, uh, let's put this on the Nasdaq Jr. Um, We'll get you a million bucks up front just in your back pocket. We'll make tons of money. And and we looked at him and we said, wait a minute, we don't know if this works. We're going to bring something in the market if it doesn't work. I don't give a shit about how much money you have. Maybe I'm not allowed to swear in podcasts, but... <laughs> no, um, no, it's encouraged. <laughs> yeah, so so we said, no, 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 we've got to prove that there's something to this. And and so, which taught me a, a, a number of lessons. One, you know, there are people that are money-oriented, and I've seen a lot of these microbiome spin-off companies, and you can tell there's a carrot there of, you know, you're going to make lots of money. But unless you have something that you really believe in that, that can work, I don't think you should pursue that. Mm. But... At the same time, if you're doing research, and um, I, I, I did an MBA because I wanted to find out more about business. And one of the things in business is that um, if you cannot picture your product on, on a shelf within two minutes, you can't describe that to someone, this is what this product will eventually look like, then you probably aren't going to work. We did a really neat study where we looked at if you give an antibiotic, press the lactobacilli um and you give an antibiotic plus placebo what happens to the the vaginal microbiome well it turns out that you um you really don't change it much with antibiotics Uh, i mean i don't think metronizole is by chance the therapy for bacterial vaginosis if you were really gonna attack that condition you wouldn't probably use that you'd use a different one but anyway, that's what they have and it doesn't change very much. And no wonder you then get recurrences. But if you give lactobacilli, boom, back came the indigenous microbes, not the ones that you put in, which mm. I don't know the mechanism of that. I don't know what's happened. I can't explain it. But it's uh, very interesting because at the end of the day, a probiotic should help resolve a problem but allow the host to get back to normal.
1: Right. Wow. So and what, what is the state you... then right now then of... Probiotics for uh, urinary tract infections in the clinical practice. You know, is is it used as routine or
0: no? It's not, and, and part of that is because the, the, it's almost a psychological thing. If you have a physician who is um, he's basically been taught to cut or give out drugs, that's pretty crude. But that's you're either in the medical side or the surgical field, and if you've never had a lecture or lectures on microbiome or probiotics. How can you expect them to think other than I give out drugs? And so there's this sort of psychic, I think, in a way, that says it has to be a drug. And of course, there's no probiotic that's been developed as a drug because of that huge expense and because the people that are in probiotics tend to be in the food business and the supplement business. And so your profits are nowhere near what happens if you're in the drug business. And so. Someone in urology would only, and I think there are urologists that do this, w- will say you can try a probiotic, but they can't prescribe it because it's not a drug. Mm-hmm. And, and so therefore also there's not the huge amounts of studies, big, big trials, because there's just no money to do it. The only way you can do it is by studies. Uh, and if it doesn't work, you know what? We put our hand up and say, this doesn't work. And it's a bit like cranberry juice. The cranberry juice data is is very weak, and yet you'll get people saying drink cranberry juice to treat UTI. There's no way you should treat UTI with cranberry juice.
1: So you've spoken a lot about kind of the lactobacillus strains and kind of deciding between those, but a lot of the interesting vaginal microbiome data shows that there are. Uh, differences between be racial differences in the vaginal microbiome and geographical differences as well. And there's interesting studies say from sub-Saharan Africa that a lot of healthy women seem to have a, a vaginal microbiome that wasn't dominant in some of these lactobacillus strains. So how, well, so how does that left, work? This,
0: yeah, uh, um, I don't buy this thing about racial differences. I think that's been, uh, it's almost like categorizing women because of the race. And I don't buy that. I mean, A woman has a baby anywhere in the world, it's a baby. right? The process of reproduction is the same. Why would the vaginal microbiome be completely different in someone in another continent? So there are differences. I don't think it's anything to do with race. There are differences. It may be because of social practice, of hygiene, of of different aspects that a, a, a culture might do more than someone else. But I hate that term because then it's pointing the finger and saying, you're black. Therefore, you have more chance of a bacterial diagnosis. That's nonsense. Hmm. Now, you're right, there are a portion, I don't know what it is, maybe it's 10, 20% of women that seem to have a healthy microbiome that's not lactobacillin. Well, I mean, there's two, two thoughts to that. One is, okay, they, have, they seem to be healthy. How do you define health? So I go to my doctor for a checkup. How does he define I'm healthy? Blood pressure, Finger on the prostate, you know, and uh, a couple of other things. They have no idea how to define health. And so we don't really know. Um, we, we just look at the person and say, by all markers, they're healthy. Therefore, this microbiota must be healthy. Maybe it is. So if it is, then that's great. Maybe there are other species that we should be looking at in that population that will help those women get back to normal when they get in trouble. But in, in, for the most part, and maybe in fact lactobacilli might do that for the reasons I said earlier, because you're asking them to uh, solve a problem and then let the woman's own microbiota get back to normal.
1: One of the more tantalizing links in this field is the potential association between the maternal vaginal microbiome and preterm birth. Preterm birth is a leading cause of complications for mother and newborn baby, and trends show it's actually increasing throughout the world over the last 20 years or so for reasons that are kind of unknown. Some recent evidence suggests that the mother's vaginal microbiome may be able to predict whether she gives birth to a preterm baby or not. A mother's vaginal microbiome may impact a baby after birth as well by seeding the baby's gut microbiome with its first bacterial species. And this has led to an interesting practice known as vaginal seeding, whereby a baby who's born by C-section, who isn't exposed to the natural microbes through a normal delivery, is instead swabbed with a swab from the mother's birth canal. I spoke to Dr. Reed about this controversial practice and where the evidence lies in this. And I also asked him what the potential was for probiotics to help prevent preterm birth.
0: I think if you're going to use a probiotic in, to prevent preterm labor, I think it is potentially feasible if the bacteriobagiosis is the cause of it. We're not sure there's associations, but, um, but you have to give it for a long time. I really think that, I, I mean, you see some people that give it from week 20 to 28 or, you know, why, why wouldn't you just continue all the way through? These are not uh, therapies that are dangerous to the baby, um, and you know the evidence is a healthy woman has got a dominant lactobacilli. Therefore, there's something that is good about that. So, can we, using a probiotic, get her own lactobacilli back? And if we do that, and she continues with that microbiota dominated by lactobacilli, does that have an effect on preterm labour? I think it would, but. Again, we haven't got that study to say, absolutely, we've proved it.
1: So would you be in favor then of kind of universally women who are pregnant, you know, should, should, should be taking a probiotic then to kind of reduce this incidence of preterm birth or some of these infections that might be related to adverse birth outcomes?
0: So uh, both, both answers will get me slaughtered. (laughs) So. The the answer yes. You don't don't answer then. (laughs) Yeah. So no. The the answer yes. You'll say, well, you're in bed with probiotic companies, and you know you'll just say yes to everything for probiotics. And the answer no is, well, see, it shows you probiotics are garbage. Um, So, I mean, I think there are. um, There's a case to be made for lactobacilli having an impact in, in the vaginal health. Now maybe fermented foods, maybe people that take fermented foods that are dominant with lactobacilli. In fact, maybe that's just as good. We don't know that. But if you have a pro, and so therefore, if you're a healthy woman, why not take fermented foods and and a, a probiotic lactobacilli during the pregnancy? these are these are uh, beneficial things for you. <clears throat> Thing is, then what someone will ask is it kombucha, is it serpro, is it what do you want me to take? I mean, I. And I don't have the answer because there's no research on this. But philosophically, if you are taking more lactobacilli, you would imagine that that would be a healthy benefit for that pregnancy.
1: Well, what, one of the kind of further developments in this field is what you touched on earlier on is uh, the vaginal the whole field of vaginal seeding, whereby a woman who gives birth to a child via C-section. Um, that child will go on to have a a different microbiome compared to a child who's born um, through a standard vaginal delivery. Uh, We don't know what the implications are in terms of a clinical outcome for these children in the long term, but there is evidence that at least their microbiome is different in the first couple of years of life. So there are kind of small pilot trials where uh, vaginal seeding has been trialed, where a kind of swab is taken from the mother's birth canal uh, and when a baby is born by C-section the baby is then swabbed at birth and it seems to normalize the the microbiome to a, a state that's similar to if the child was born by a, a standard delivery. So what are your thoughts on that based on what you kind of said earlier on and I'm, I'm not too sure how positive they are but what, what do you think about that? Well, um,
0: I, I think the Nature Medicine paper w- was um... It was mythical research, really. It was—I um, don't—I uh, I don't think it should have be been published by patients. Um, I, I think that it was uh, hyped up, and I think too many journals nowadays are publishing stuff to get in the newspapers and and on the internet, rather than. I mean, if you think this through, how this because there's two different types of seeding. There's the seeding from the mother herself. Or there's a seeding, which they were talking about, is you have this, like a fecal transplant donor who gives stool. Uh, well, instead of that, you have a, a woman with a wonderful vaginal microbiome, and you get her to squab and, and pass it on. How's that going to work? I mean, that you know, the, the vaginal microbiota, as you know, is, is diverse. Are you giving Atopobium? Are you getting intracoccus? Are you, you know, what are you giving? And I think in that study it was probably a crispatus that dominated the, the swabs. But why don't you skip a crispatus? And the concept was no, no, you need the the milieu, the consortium. Well, if you're gonna do that, then uh, you don't know from day to day when you this donor, because she's got a menstrual cycle too. So you you, do, you know, you're never going to have that the same as you have in the fecal transplant. It's a very different thing. So I think that's just mythical. In terms of seeding. Sorry. In terms right, of seeding for um, the the mother to the baby, uh, that was Rob Knight's kind of concept early on. In fact, his wife did that. I mean, in theory, it, it could be a good thing, but if you've ever been to a pregnancy a delivery, the, the stool flora is is there as well. So I don't see that it's just the, the vaginal microbiota that's colonizing that baby. And again the last thing you want to do is, is uh, I mean, if you look at Brazil, I think the cesarean rate is over 80%. Yeah. I mean, this is madness. And uh, people are moving towards more and more cesarean. And so if, if you're giving them an out clause that says, oh, well, no problem, we'll do a cesarean. Oh, yeah, because I'm going to take the vaginal swab and cover the baby and everything's going to be fine. I don't think that's the right message to give. And plus, if that woman's vaginal microbiota is not tested for herpes and and HPV and other things, you better be careful what you're passing on to the baby. Mm. So I I think, you know, these concepts, people, I mean, they're interesting scientifically, but they're never going to get, hopefully, they're never going to get to something that, as I said to you, is a product on the shelf, an actual practice. Mm. And I also think that unless you've got some of this, uh, um, Fecal microbes, then I, I just don't see a swab from that's got mostly lactobacillus. You put it on the skin of the baby and in the mouth of the baby. I, I just don't see that making a big difference.
1: I think that's interesting because there was evidence quite recently, only a few weeks ago, that actually the there was mechanistic evidence showing that the, the infant microbiome is mainly colonized by the mother's gut as opposed to the yeah. the species from the vaginal microbiome I mean these lactobacilli species aren't the ones that are dominating in the infant gut in, in the first few weeks of life anyway. Probiotics have been quite controversial since they were first defined by Dr. Reed and others now this is partly because they are generally grouped into one treatment where probiotics are really all individual and they are very strain specific meaning that each strain or each species will have a different function and this is by definition which states that probiotics are live microorganisms that, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit to the host. However, certain recent studies suggest that certain microbes may be able to exert a beneficial effect on a host, i.e. a human, without being alive, for example, because they contain a certain sugar, for example, on their outer coat, which can have a benefit for human health. I asked Dr. Reid whether the definition of probiotics needs to be updated and why certain regulatory authorities, namely EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, have notoriously been unenthusiastic about allowing the term probiotic on foodstuffs.
0: Over the, that period of time, you know, I think we've, we've gone from no one really cared about probiotics at all through to, wait a minute. Um, now, people who never ever would have supported research and probiotics are now seeing there might be value in it. And and what the so what's happened is you get these so-called experts popping up that really aren't experts at all. And unfortunately, some of them are on products that you look at the product and say this person's an expert and the product's garbage. I mean, how how, how does this work? And so, and then you get people that say. Well, I didn't really develop that definition, so I'm going to change it. It's time to change it, and and so I think you're seeing this sort of dynamic, uh, multiple kind of approaches. People talking about probiotics and saying probiotics are in us. No, they're not in you unless you've taken them. Or we've got lots of probiotics on our skin. No, you don't. And so you have to clarify it to the consumer. In my opinion, a probiotic is a probiotic, full stop, and GM probiotic is still a probiotic. A dead probiotic does not exist. You can't have a dead probiotic. And so you tell me what other definition you would like to give to your your approach. Maybe it's a vaccine, guess what? Or maybe it's a cell wall. Then you come out and say, "This this is not a probiotic. This is a cell wall. Because why would you take a dead probiotic? Why not just take a dead bacteria? that's really all you're doing. doesn't matter that it was a probiotic. It's nothing to do with it being a probiotic. It's a dead organism, and you're working on the cell wall. So def- define it like we did probiotics. We have defined ours. Lots of things fit into it. Lots of things don't. If yours doesn't, get another definition.
1: Well, what one of these new definitions is uh, live biotherapeutic in the context of preventing or treating disease and that has kind of purposely been used to distinguish itself yeah. from probiotics where do you think that so uh, uh, again that's, distinction to lies? Me that's,
0: that's semantics and that came from the fda because fda always called them live biotherapeutics and uh, i mean i don't know why the fda uh, has not taken up the definition of probiotics it's a probiotic if it's treating a disease then you're just calling it something different to fit into your, in my opinion, antiquated FDA or, or regulatory system that you know for a hundred years has said that food cannot prevent, treat, or mitigate disease. Are you kidding me? You don't think food can uh, alter diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Absolutely, it can. But we've got these definitions, and so they say, well, it can't fit into this hole, therefore, it is a drug. And therefore, we're not going to use the name probiotic. We're going to use the name alive biotherapeutic. It's a probiotic. If it's a probiotic that, that goes by the definition, that's what it is. And so it's really kind of the working around the system rather than changing the system. Hmm. And and uh, it's primarily come from the FDA, unfortunately. And I don't know why they would uh, call it live biotherapeutic, but hey, but they have. I mean, life bi- uh, biotherapeutic could be. Uh, a pathogen well that's not a probiotic
1: well it's not only the fda because efsa the european food safety authority also seem to um let's say have issues with with the word probiotic and they've clamped down on that uh, on on people using that so it's no longer seen on every yogurt or water or whatever other food and because they claim that the that most of these uses of probiotics don't have the clinical evidence behind them to support the fact that they confer a health benefit and there's not enough clinical studies behind them. What are your thoughts on that uh, about using the term probiotic in foodstuffs? Well, in I, I think EFSA is a sham.
0: I mean, it, <laughs> I mean it, it's, um, it was formed by politicians. The panels that have been out of it, hardly any expertise in probiotics at all, um, they in my opinion we should have done what the aids activists did we should have demonstrated outside the houses of the people in that committee i mean it was so ridiculous and um they are never going to approve a probiotic based on their interpretation of the information that were given by the politicians and i'll get criticized for this but uh, i've got other friends that that i would disband F altogether. But, um I mean, there's been studies in British Medical Journal and other uh, well-respected journals that they've just just said, no, no, no. That doesn't prove a health benefit. And so I don't see the day where uh, there will be uh, an EFSA approval of this term probiotic. And it's in part because it was misguided in the first place and they've not had the expertise on the panel. Um, What do you do about it? Again. apart from demonstrating, which <laughs> I don't have time to do. But um, I mean, for example, in Ireland, it, I, I think the Irish uh, Cork and other places that are working on probiotics, I mean, the Cork Group developed the product Align for Proct and Gamble. That's a $100 million product. And yet when Ireland under the EU came in and said, we can't use the word probiotic, the Irish should have gone crazy. They should have gone to the, the government in Ireland and said, this is not acceptable that you are banning the use of this word. And, and, but they don't. And they didn't. And so people have just sat back and accepted it, instead of fighting it and saying, this is not the way that it should be done. Health Canada accepts the word probiotic, And there are some claims you can argue for and against some of the claims. Health Canada is not a third world country. Why, do, why would Ireland accept a rule from Brussels, from EFSA, from a panel that doesn't know much about probiotics
1: and and
0: dictate what their products in Ireland say, I think it's it's, uh, disgraceful.
1: Let's just talk quickly about some of the studies that you've mentioned there that people mightn't know as much about. And one of those was the paper which showed that giving a, a... mix of probiotics, uh, whatever they were, uh, eight different species of bacteria, seemed to uh, delay the recovery of the microbiome after someone had been given antibiotics. Because there is good evidence there before that study that probiotics uh, reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea if they're taken during antibiotic treatment or after antibiotic treatment. Yet this uh, study seemed to Contradict that in a way where it showed that the microbiome doesn't necessarily recover, but they didn't show clinical outcomes in yeah. in these people. So what? I mean, what was your response to that?
0: Well, I mean, I'm sure that the authors uh, were well intentioned and they did lots of good science. But what's the bottom line here? They took healthy people, they gave them massive doses of antibiotics, they flushed them out with, uh, um, you know. Uh, sodium picosulfate, so that they could take samples. right? And So you you don't have a realistic situation here at all. And then you have eight people that you give a probiotic. Now let's look at the probiotic. This is a probiotic that was tested in a clinical study in in IBS and didn't work. So is it really a probiotic? It has a bunch of lactobacilli in it. Well, I, I question if it is a probiotic. But if it is, why would you pick this one? So anyway, and you give it, to, after sort of destroying the gut microbiota uh, and, and flushing them out, you, you then take samples on these eight patients and you conclude that probiotics delay recovery. I mean, you must be off your head. How can you possibly conclude that with eight patients? I mean, I mean probiotics get criticized because there's only 100 patients on the study. And this makes it... in sell and in the news with with a handful of people i mean it, it's um it's it's back to this concept that if you have a high profile journal and a big controversial you know newsy newsy story then and you slam the whole field i mean you couldn't write this you couldn't write this it's, it's, um, it's crazy
1: yeah i think that the the issue a lot of it uh, a lot of this is stemming from is that there is yet to be this kind of mechani- mechanistic evidence of of how certain probiotics work, and yeah. there's also not enough, as you say, large clinical trials because they're not being funded of probiotics. So when there are studies that are trying to sit at those crossroads and and do both yeah. at the same time, sometimes they fall down at the wayside. On on, oh, the-
0: I mean, it's very difficult to. Uh... To prove mechanisms in in provoids. and you're dealing with the gut and unfortunately they had to flush out the gut to take samples. Ideally, you would have a pill that would come in real time and take a sample, and then you know you you wouldn't have to do the flushing out. And you know, I'm as I said, I'm sure they were well intentioned because they're trying to get at mechanisms, and it's difficult. But don't make these uh, conclusions that t- try and destroy a field and to be honest the clinical evidence and afterwards Hannah uh, sayuska brought out a, a meta analysis including that uh, study with it's not the the cell paper but a uh, new england journal of medicine paper saying that maybe the gg didn't work in the pa- the kids who had diarrhea in the study that was done uh, by friedman and others um, but even accounting, because nothing worked in those kids. If you've got E. coli 157 and Giardia, which some of them did have, nothing's gonna work in that. But even accounting for that, if you still look at the meta-analysis, these lactobacillus GG are still useful in diarrhea. So what, what I think you need to do is look at the, the, all the evidence, rather than these sensationalistic studies. Now, the New England Journal of Medicine Studies were done very well you can't criticize them they got uh, published there but look at the patients that they had. these are kids in emergency who are very sick why would a probiotic work really and it didn't work and they even said themselves that that drugs don't work in these kids so nothing works why would a probiotic work and so i'm the first one to say you know what in that situation it didn't work no there's no surprise there and if you have a kid in that situation, don't expect the probiotic to work, mm. you know, and so it's not, I think people might look at me and say, oh, whatever, you know, he's just so pro, pro uh, probiotics and, and um, he's blinded to it. I'm not blinded at all.
1: Despite the controversies around the probiotics field as a whole, there still is some very good clinical evidence that certain species of beneficial microbes can help fight and prevent certain disorders, such as antibiotic-associated diarrhea and traveler's diarrhea. Furthermore, certain conditions such as necrotizing enterocolitis, a really bad inflammatory condition of the intestines, which usually occurs in preterm babies, has shown to be benefited by certain types of probiotics. I asked Dr. Reed what other clinical conditions have really good scientific evidence behind them to show that they may benefit from probiotic treatment.
0: Yeah, I mean... Um... It's a very good question that probably a lot of clinicians would like to ask me. And all I can say is, you have to go to the literature and find the evidence for different strains, and you decide whether that's strong enough or not. And in some people's mind, it never will be. In EFSA, it never will be, unless you do a massive study. And the study in India on sepsis was over 4,000 patients, and that's still not enough for some people. So I don't think it's my position to persuade people because the data has to persuade them, and and therefore you have to almost look even on an individual basis, and and of course that doesn't meet the standard of evidence because they want it to be a thousand people, but there are cases where it has for sure had an effect in preventing UTI or bacterial vaginosis, but the the Majority of the literature is on things like IBS. It's on um, necrotizing enterocolitis, It's, it's on um, prevention of antibody-associated diarrhea because there's been the most studies. So, um, I'm, I mean, we've suggested, for example, that we just published a paper suggesting it, it might play a role in, in reducing the severity of COVID-19. I have no data on that, but what I look at is Why are patients dying, and is it because of sepsis, because the gut barrier function is so inflamed that the the pathogens are getting into bloodstream and they're caused by sepsis? If that is the case in some patients, then a a probiotic that has an improvement in gut barrier function might work. And therefore, we should try it. And my my biggest plea is not that probiotics are the be and end of or not, but I would like to see more people try it in a well thought out manner. And when it doesn't work, tell us why it doesn't work. And then, then you'll know where it does work. And I mean, the, the, the necrotized enterprise, I'll give you my own experience. My, my wife had twins in 1992, and we, they were early. We were in, in the neonatal intensive care unit. And another baby in that unit developed neck. And I remember it this day, they pulled a curtain around this baby and um, tried to save its life, and they didn't. And I thought of this, this unit. This is a box. And which bacteria, beneficial bacteria, enter this box? None. This is a multi drug resistant box. And so, unless you introduce a beneficial microbe, how are you possibly thinking that the, the, um, these babies are going to do as well as they might? And so, for then, for a long time, I tried to make the case for probiotics in uh, prevention of neck. Now, uh, we even had a debate on YouTube, which I always joke about is something like 395 views. So it went viral. <laughs> My mum watched it all 395 times. But, <laughs> yeah. um, the thing that eventually made them change their mind was a study that happened in Montreal. And it, it was because now we have a probiotic in Canada that we can get access to. There's a study supporting it. Let's try it. So they introduced it. and. For the life of me, I don't know why they haven't written the, the, the study up, but the, written that what happened. Their incidence of neck was about 3%. It's now down to almost undetectable.
1: Okay. Now,
0: that's hundreds of babies' lives that have been saved. And if you're a premature, low birth weight baby, you get a probiotic standard treatment. Now that took years and years of talking to people and persuading people. And so my my point is, unless you try it. You're not going to know, and in some cases like this, the difference is huge.
1: Yeah, and I think there's what well, I've been guilty of, even just asking you here, is is referring to probiotics kind of generically as probiotics. And and you're right that in each of these different clinical settings, there could be a different probiotic yeah. which has a different mechanistic function to to reduce, for example, you know, the in- inflammatory condition in in neck, for example. You
0: see. Um, you know, I've obviously been in this game a long time, but go back to we pick strains, whether they're the right strains or not, we pick strains because of properties that we felt they needed to have. And unfortunately, the majority of probiotics on the market, and, um, and I really say majority, are just someone come along, well, we'll take a rhamnosus, we'll take fermentum, we'll take this, we'll stick it in, and off you go. To me, that's not good enough. And the only multi-strain probiotic, DSL-3, that um, has some effect on uh, inflammatory bowel disease, they they didn't pick each individual strain, but they picked seven that they thought would work. So, I mean, ideally, I would have rather they picked individual strains, looked at all their properties, but there's at least some thinking behind it. And you can go in the store today and find a 15-strain probiotic, and you'll see on the internet You have to take arrows because it's 20 billion and it's got 25 strains. I don't care how many strains it has. What do the strains do? Mm. And unless you know what they do, then it's not helping at all. And that's why we get a lot of cynicism and criticism, rightly so, from uh, scientists, clinicians, and and others, because um, companies are not putting enough thought into the products that they're bringing on the market.
1: And, and a majority of these probiotics are all I mean 995 percent of them are lactobacillus strains or bifidobacteria strains. I mean obviously a lot of that is because you know they have I mean their whole family has a might have a protective functions against whatever disease, but also because we know they're safe, they are less prone to acquiring antimicrobial resistance genes, for example. But what can we do or what? What are the next steps that will happen in science to be able to explode and, and expand that potential uh, map of probiotics that we can tap into? Yeah, so
0: you're absolutely right. I mean, um, they're available. They have a safe history of use. Uh, companies produce them. Let's go get some and put them in a, in a, a product. Once you start bringing in, I mean, the, 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 the talk about Bacteroides fragilis having a role. Bacteroides fragilis is not a probiotic. If you want it to be a probiotic, it will require more safety studies because that could potentially be a pathogen. But you could do it because E. coli Nissel, 19, uh, 1917 or whatever, that's an E. coli, but it's a probiotic. Right? So you can do it. And then Ackermansia, we've seen from the Netherlands, mm. looks like they're developing that as a probiotic, and I'm sure it's for a specific purpose. So that's, that's what we should be doing. And uh, Christian Hansen, for example, uh, have now developed, uh, it's a company in Europe, they have now developed uh, a system of growing up strict anaerobes. So now commercially, it could be feasible to take what we previously not been able to propagate, uh, a strict anaerobe, and then develop it as a probiotic. So it takes a number of steps, and, and if you don't have that industry step at the end, it's not going to happen.
1: Like many emerging areas of medicine and health, the probiotics field is hampered by much hype. Despite this, it is evolving. And there's some really exciting research showing that genetically modified microbes or bacteria that can target certain areas of the body may pose potential as future successful probiotics. I spoke to Dr. Reed about what he sees in the future of the field of probiotics, and where probiotics could be used in areas that we haven't considered before.
0: Well, I, you know, we've been doing work on honeybees. And uh, um, I think it's, you know, I, if you'd asked me when I first started, would I ever work on honeybee? I think you're nuts. <laughs> and, and we're also doing some work on salmon. And, and the principles are the same for, for ecosystem. And see where we can use beneficial microbes instead of pesticides, instead of, in our farming systems. And I think that's very a very exciting way to do it. Um, in terms of diseases, supposing we had a 10% effect on COVID. That would be amazing. Uh, and so I think there will be cases not we're not preventing it. You're not a, a a lactobacillus that you swallow is not going to prevent you getting COVID-19. But if it showed that it prevented you going the, the cytokine storm and dying, there's does, does a place for that. So I like people to think outside the box and think, how can we apply beneficial microbes in whatever form to ways that help health? And and I think there are multiple targets. Uh, we did a study. It was only a rat study. It was on cardiovascular disease. And you, you basically, you get a heart attack, and you give the probiotic right away. And instead of that rat going on to develop uh, renal cardiac failure, you help the healing of the heart. Now, supposing that was true in humans, you imagine the number of people that would, instead of having, because once you get heart failure, your your lifespan is five years max. Mm. Well, maybe there's a way to develop a a, a probiotic that you give to someone as soon as they get a heart attack. So I think there are diseases and conditions in humans and I think there are lots in the ecosystem where we can use those beneficial microbes. And,
1: and tell us know, a little bit about bees you mentioned there. You're, you're giving probiotics bees to bees.
0: So they die. The colony collapse is up at 40% in some countries. For, we can't sustain that. As a humans, we will die. We will be finished. And there's some very famous quotes, probably Einstein even quoted that We need to have uh, pollinators. And so the, the habitat loss. Uh, the pesticides and the pathogens—they're the things that kill us. Well, you can't do much about habitat loss, so then you have to attack pesticides and and uh, pathogens. Well, you can't attack pesticides because farmers will be up in arms because unfortunately they don't have an alternative. So we need to find an alternative. If we can't find an alternative, then what the pesticide does is it attacks the immune response, and then the pathogen goes in and kills the bee, and so. What we're trying to do is boost the immune response in the honeybee and counter the pathogen. And by doing that, can you then uh, reduce the amount of colony collapse? I mean, in California, they have something like 80,000 hives that get destroyed with pathogens every year. I mean, there's over a million hives because that industry, almond industry, is massive. Mm. So you could see that you, even if you have a small effect, it has implications for the production of that food, the economy, jobs, etc. And so I, I think there's a place for this, and uh, we're, you know we're doing studies. I think we're doing them well, and there'll be um, there'll be a place for this somewhere in the in the production.